All right. For those of you who uh, come here regularly, you know something's a little bit different because I have a handheld mic and there's a over-the-ear mic on Brother Bill's ear this morning. And so he's going to be up here um, with you most of the morning bringing God's word. But before, uh, but before he did, I wanted to kind of um, bring us all up to speed in case you haven't been here. I know there's been illnesses and, you know, still kind of getting through the first of the year. In February, we have been focusing on the church. What is the church? What does it mean to be a part of the church? What's the mission of the church? Right? And, and it's been really helpful. I've had some really good discussions because what has happened, in case, you know, you're not aware, uh, we moved here back in 2017, right? And there was a group that came with us, been with us all those years, and then over the last two, three years, a lot of you have come. And we have thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you. Um, Many of you have made this your church home. Uh, Towards the end of last uh, quarter, last year, we seem to have this other wave of of people come and connect with us. And so as we're starting off 2020, uh, the Lord really put on my heart, you know what? It's no longer the old guard and the new guard. It's just us. It's just the new we. And so what... What really was on my heart in February, what we've been going through is, okay, as the collective we, if this is, you know, us right now in this particular time and and place, how can we be unified moving forward into 2020 and beyond? And ultimately, it's through the Word of God. Ultimately, it's by understanding biblical teaching on the church, right? The church is the people. The church is built on Jesus, right? He's the builder. We build according to his blueprint. We have a mission to make disciples, Ultimately, the church is made up of people who are in a new covenant relationship with God through Jesus, and this new covenant relationship ultimately plays out this way. Okay, that's kind of in a nutshell what, we, what we've covered, uh, and it's really important because a lot of us in this room, you come from church traditions, and you come in with expectations, assumptions, you know, checklists, right, job descriptions for me. I don't even know you, but you have a job description for me because that's what senior pastors are supposed to do, or elders are supposed to do this. And so nothing wrong with those, but we always have to remember that we're unified as a church around what Scripture teaches about the church, right? And yet, here's the crazy thing. The church is made up of people who are imperfect, right? Imperfect, in-process people, right? You always you hear around, I kind of joke repeatedly, if you find the perfect church, don't join it, because... You'll mess it up, right? Everyone's looking for the perfect church. But there is no perfect church. Now, there's biblical churches with imperfect people following Jesus the best they can, right? But there is no perfect church. And so if we're going to be unified and continue to move forward, we have to really be unified around Scripture. This is our foundation. Timothy says that the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. Right. And so really quick in in Acts two, there's this incredible story of the birth of the church. Right. And uh, in act in two forty one, an incredible thing happens. Right. Remember, Peter preaches and how many people got saved? Three thousand. Now, what had happened is a whole bunch of pilgrims had come in. Right. The city swells to several hundred thousand, maybe over a million people. The Holy Spirit moves. Peter preaches. How many people got saved? 3,000, like a third of Ojai, in one shot get, now we forget this because we clean up scripture, right? We tend to like kind of sanitize it. Okay, so imagine this, Holy Spirit moves, 3,000 people 
many of whom had come and were not leaving. So 3,000, this church is birthed. Woo-hoo-hoo! 3,000 people. Now what? There was a huge now what moment, as in food, clothing, shelter, jobs. Now what? Right? And that same question is even fast forward to 2020. Now what? How are we going to do this? How is, what are we supposed to do? As much as we celebrate 3,000 back here, as much as we celebrate 150-ish here, that same sort of question still is, is relevant for 2020. How do we do this? How does this work? Right? And so there's this familiar passage starting in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number Day by day, those who are being saved. So you started with 3,000, but it didn't end at three. But there was this communal, community, we truth, we foundation, out of necessity. If you read that passage, and I really encourage you to, the early church immediately was thrust into we, common, right? But I love in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The word of God and relationships. It was the word of God and that word fellowship means having things in common, sharing, participating. We're all in this together. And that's really kind of the root of even what we try to do here. It's the word of God. We're devoted to the word of God and we're devoted to living in genuine biblical community. Okay. And so Bill's going to come up and he's going to speak to uh, something that some of you are real familiar with, but I really encourage you just because when you hear the I'm just, I won't give it away. The S word. Don't tune out. Because he's going to talk about a churchy word that many of us assume we know. And sometimes when, you, when, a, when someone says, I'm going to teach on this today, and you think you know it, you kind of check out, and you're thinking, and you're daydreaming, because you've heard about the S word for 10, 20 years, right? Uh, but I think really many of us, and even myself, I'm looking forward to it, because that same question that the early church had, we have today. How does this work? How does this work collectively and all the way down to what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? All right? So come on up there. Yeah, so some of you are already freaked out because the S word is really stewardship. (laughs) Shame on you. (laughs) Well, good morning, everybody. I was preparing for this message, um, and uh, it occurred to me that uh, 1973 was an important year. I mean, at least it was for me. So how many remember back to 1973? Do you know where you were and what you were doing? Yes, some. Some of you are just like weren't even born yet. But that doesn't matter because 1973 was important because there was a song that went to number nine on the R&B charts that year. Oh, now I'm really going to tax your memory. There was a song that went to number nine on the R&B charts, and it was sung by this group called the OJs. Anybody hear the OJs? Show of hands. Oh, there's like five people that have heard of the OJs. That's great. Well, the OJs had a hit in 1973, and it was called For the Love of Money, and it goes something like this. 
Art, you're loving this, aren't you, Art? There it is. Now you remember, don't you? Okay, you didn't even have to know the OJs. No, so Art is sitting here. Art, will you raise your hand for a second? I love this man. So in 1973, there's Art back there. Art was playing the bass guitar. Did you hear that lay down on the bass? That's Art. Art was playing in this band back in the 70s, and they were touring all around the East Coast, right? And he's a bass player, and, and we've played with him before. Anyway, Art, thanks for letting me call you out there. I didn't get his approval for that, but look at the smile. Huh? Art smiling. Now, before you traditionalists start freaking out because I'm up here playing some secular song in the church, you know, because do we do that? Can we play a secular song at church? Well, yeah, we can because this one happens to be from 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's what the song is about. In 1973, God was using a secular song to teach biblical truth to a whole bunch of people that needed to hear it by these three guys that were like Southern Gospel. Doo, 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 doo. I love it. So you've probably figured out by now that we're going to talk about money today. <laughs> we're going to talk about money today. And that makes sense because money is a part of stewardship, which is a part of covenant, which is what we're called to. Amen? Yeah. Money. Now, some of you are probably thinking, oh boy, here goes Bill. He's going to get all TV preacher on me. But I'm not. I'm not going to ask you for money. So you just got to relax. I promise we are not selling bottles of anointing oil there will be no prayer towels for twenty nine ninety five, or if you send more, God will answer your prayers even faster. Don't laugh. I've heard that on TV from TV preachers. It's ridiculous. Now, this morning, we are just going to take a look at God's word and what it says about money and how we're supposed to respond to it. Because the first point this morning is God wants you and me, to get comfortable with money. And the only way that you're going to get comfortable with money and talking about it is to have a biblical view of it. You will never get comfortable with money until you have a biblical world view of it. Because let's face it, talking about money is uncomfortable for a lot of us, isn't it? It just is. You see, privately, we're okay talking about money. Because it's private. We keep it private. It's mine. It's nobody's business, right? Publicly? Oh, that's a whole different story. It's a whole different story. So we tend to get all weird, don't we? We get all weird about the subject of money. How much we make, how much we got, or how much we don't got. We don't like to talk about that kind of stuff. But I think Jesus knew, actually... I know Jesus knew that we would struggle with this thing, this, this money thing. And so that's pretty clear in Scripture because, you see, Jesus himself talked about it all the time, both directly and indirectly. He talked about money a lot. In fact, if you look at the parables of Jesus, and there's a lot of them, half of the time he is mentioning money, wealth, 
giving. There is money associated with about half of the parables that teaches that, that Jesus used to teach from. So, besides the kingdom of God, which he spoke about most often, he used money. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? He used money a lot. So I think we just need to accept that he knows that we would be struggling with money and we need to have a godly, biblical view of money. Otherwise, we might be tempted to buy lottery tickets and spin the roulette wheel. And that might even touch a nerve or two in here. Ah, ooh, can I do that? Now, I'm not saying there's any problem with money. Okay, let's, let's cut to the chase here. There is no problem with money in and of itself. There just isn't. But the OJs in 1973 and the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in AD 63 were both pretty right on in their teaching about how we're supposed to view money. So check out the first scripture this morning, 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, starting in 2b. Anybody know what the b is when there's a b or an a? Ah, first part, second part. I like it. Let's take a look at 1 Timothy 2b. There's ten verses here. Nine, actually. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ... And to godly teaching, listen to this, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels and words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Ouch. Now, I'm not going to throw TV preachers under the bus a lot, but be careful. Because he goes on to say, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And here it is. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. There's not much commentary that's even necessary on that because it's just so plainly true and easy to understand, isn't it? But we can't escape it because money, if we're not careful, has power over us. And that's just the way the enemy wants it. So you've got to be careful because the world will tell you that money is power. And if you believe that, that's a big problem. Because real wealth has nothing to do with money. Nothing. But you see, the reality is this. As citizens of heaven, we still live in the world, right? We are citizens of heaven, but we live in the world. And we need money in the world. Because we exchange money for all kinds of things, don't we? Necessities, even luxuries. It's an exchange mechanism. So pretty much every culture on earth exchanges some form of money for stuff. And that stuff can be used 
in all kinds of ways. Money can be good. Money can be bad. Money can be even evil. So here's some biblical trivia. And if you get this right, the first one to get this right, I'll buy you a lottery ticket. (laughs) Not. How many verses are there in Scripture that talk about money? How many verses? John, how many verses are in? You're the one that knows this. There's 2,000. How many that talk about money? Okay, how many? How many? How many verses are in the Bible? You know this. I don't. Do you remember? Like 33,000 verses in the Bible. And how many? Uh, how many scriptures talk about money? 989, 2,000. Any other guesses? No. 2,350 to be exact, depending on which translation you're using. That's a lot of talk of money in Scripture. So based on that alone, we can establish that money matters to God and it should matter to us. Amen? So the first point this morning, remember, is to get comfortable with money. Making it, managing it, and giving it. Biblically. Because biblical handling of money is about stewardship. But stewardship isn't only about money. And I think you've got to remember this too. In the end, it really doesn't matter how much money you make or how much money you have. What matters to God is what you do with it. That's what matters. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Here it is again, a B. 31B, second half. You guys are catching on fast. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, the reality is, you see, we're really influenced by the world's view of money. And I can prove that because we can take debt, for example. Take debt, for example. Hmm. It's really interesting because the debt that we have in the world's view is like no big deal. Because how many of us have debt? But we're told that it's not a big deal, but that does not jive with Proverbs 22.7, which says the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. So let me give you a really good example of being a bad example when it comes to debt. The United States government. That's you and me, by the way. As of yesterday at 11 o'clock in the morning, had $23,340,417,905,268 in debt, and it's climbing by the second. Now, to put that into context for you about debt is no big deal, and this is a bad example for us, that means that for every person in the United States, as of yesterday, they owe $70,871. And if you're a taxpayer and you're sitting in here today, you owe $188,578. And so put that on your loan application the next time you go to the bank and see what they do with it. That's debt. That's the United States government. But you want to make it a little more close to home? All those people in the United States, every single person that owes $70,871, they're responsible for $14 trillion in consumer debt. This is a big deal. How we manage our money matters to God. And this debt thing from a biblical point of view is like out of control. It's out of control. If you do not have the right view of money... It is so easy to get caught up in all of this debt thing. 
because we're told that we deserve all this stuff. You are bombarded with the message from the world that you deserve all of this stuff. So what happens is, coming from that nonsense, we go into debt to buy the stuff that we're told that we deserve. It's crazy. There's real consequences to this thing. There were almost one million people that filed for bankruptcy last year in the United States. Now that's going to hit close to home for some of us. Proverbs 22.7 talks about slavery to the lender. Ask somebody that's filed for bankruptcy how difficult that is. It's true. 60% of marriages in the United States end up in divorce. And do you know what the primary reason is? The overwhelming, overriding reason given? Money. Money. But money is necessary. And it's also significant because we trade it. We trade money for things we value, right? That's all it is. It's just a swap. We're swapping money for things we value. So in one sense, each of us gets to establish what the value is of the money that we have. So it was like about how long ago was it that I had the privilege of being up here? It was the last Sunday. I never forget these things. It was the last Sunday in, in December. And I, used, I remember this because Randy stole this from me. I still have the same one. It's a, I have a $100 bill. Thank you for giving it back to me, Randy. So I have this $100 bill. And at the end of the day, I get to establish what the value of this is based on what I decide to do with it. Because it has a value for what I use it for. Here's a case in point. Let's say that next month you have a box. And in that box, it's got a bunch of money in it. And in that in that box, you've got to start pulling money out for the things that you want to trade it for and that you establish that has value to you. And my guess is that every single person sitting in this room values both food and sleep. <laughs> okay, so you're going to take money out of your box and you're going to be buying some food and you're going to exchange that. You're going to trade that money because you value it. But what else do you value? Because during the course of the month, you're going to pull more money out of that box, aren't you? And you're going to trade that money for all kinds of things. Some of them are necessary. Taxes. I don't care how much debt you're in, you're going to pay the taxes. That's the way it works. But then you're going to buy things like voluntary things. How about entertainment? How about convenience? What about the toys that we all have? You see, we're spending money on these kinds of things. So depending on how much money is in your box, you exchange it for the things that you have established are valuable to you. And for the most part, there's just nothing wrong with that. Unless, of course, you empty your box. And there's no more money left in it. And you've decided to acquire things that you really don't need. So you acquire them with money that you really don't have. And hello, credit card debt. Amen? I love it. I should have gone into the credit card debt business. Man, those guys are making like 20, 30% interest. I can't do that anywhere. I think it's a good business. Unless you're on the downside of it. Of course, you know this isn't a good thing, this debt thing. But it's so easy, we just do it, don't we? 
And then some of us end up with those guys that had to file bankruptcy, the million people that did that last year, because they just didn't know how to steward it. And by the way, just a heads up, you heard it here first. You see, there's a legal mechanism for filing bankruptcy, like those million people did in 2019. A million people filed for bankruptcy. But you know, biblically, even though there's a legal opportunity and mechanism to file a bankruptcy, biblically, that does not absolve you of the responsibility to pay it back. It does not. Ouch. Stewardship. So 1 Timothy 6 tells us the love of money certainly can be the root of all kinds of problems and based on how we think of it and what we do with it, which is why Jesus said in Luke 12, 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, a lot of people don't like this because either they don't know how to be a steward of their money or some people just don't care. But let's be honest. Jesus just hits the nail on the head he always does <laughs> doesn't he i mean come on jesus hits the nail on the head when he confronts us with the truth that where your money goes that's where your heart goes do you see the sequence there in luke 12 34 follow your money trail and you will quickly discover where your heart is no wonder there's 2,350 verses in the Bible about money. It's important to God. He wants it to be important to us. But I have some really good news for you this morning. You ready? Come on, wake up. Are you ready for some good news? All right, here we go. Here's the good news. God says, we read it this morning, God says the earth and everything in it belongs to him. Psalm 24, 1. So that means that you and your money belong to God. So here's the little secret. It's not your money. It's not yours. Ah. Second part of that good news is God expects you to manage his money well. And here's the crazy good news. He has given every single one of us exactly the same ability to manage his money well because it has absolutely nothing to do with intellect, experience, or ability. It has everything to do with your heart. Managing God's money well is a heart issue. We see that in Scripture. So how do you manage God's money from a biblical and a practical point of view? I mean, how do you do that? You hear these messages in church all the time and you walk out going, I wonder how I do that. Well, Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. I love the wisdom of the Proverbs. So look at it. Do you want to manage the Lord's money well? Hello, well, then make a plan. That's what Proverbs says. Make a plan, be diligent about it, and surely there will be an abundance. In other words, why don't you make a budget? Uh-oh. A budget? A what? See, the vast majority of people don't make budgets, right? Come on. I'm gonna, I wasn't going to do this, but now I'm going to. I feel very emboldened this morning. <laughs> 
How many people have a written budget? I'll be honest. How many people have a written budget for your personal finances? All right, seven. That's seven. Don't feel bad. It's very uncommon. It's uncommon to have a written budget. One of the curses of being a business guy for all my whole life is I didn't have any choice. By the way, 1982, I was one of those guys that was on the verge of filing bankruptcy. Someone helped me. And you know what they helped me with? A budget. So, listen, budgets can be intimidated, which is why so many don't do it. But let me help you with this. It doesn't have to be that way. In fact, I've been a subscriber to the KISS method of budgeting for a really long time. Most of you are familiar with the KISS method. K-I-S-S. Keep it simple, stupid. And for me, I'm, come on, I'm not the sharpest tack in the box here. It needs to be simple for me to pull it off, right? Simple is always best. So here's a sample of what a budget, a budget template works, looks like. And I, I, I use these all the time. So, oh wait, can I come down here? Is that... I, so anyway, so a budget is really simple. So what a budget does is it, it, it tells you, uh, so you look across the top line up there. I use this all the time to help people with budgeting. And it's really simple. You've got the months down there, and then you've got the expenses. So you go to the next one, you know, tithing and housing, and there's utilities and gas and, and, and auto insurance and clothing, and keep going. And, and uh, so it's all the things across the top there that you spend money on. So that's where the money goes out. And so really what it is is a budget is about what is your income. So Reverend Luther McCurtis, he's a big black man like this big right and I've known him since I was like this big and he gave me some advice as a 21 year old businessman and Reverend McCurtis came to me and he said son I want to tell you y'all want to be biblically successful in your business and I said and, and he's a huge man and I'm yes he said I'm going to tell you just one thing you got to do you just make sure that your income Always exceed your outgo, and you'll be successful in business. <laughs> and you know what? He was right. So all a budget is, I mean, simply, let's not get intimidated by it, guys. All a budget is is figuring out in advance what your income is, because that's usually pretty predictable, and then what we choose to spend our money on, and just putting it in a category. That's all. Because all it is, really, is getting organized according to the Proverbs that tells us to have a plan. Because where your treasure is, your money will follow. What you treasure, you will put your money into. That's the way it works. Sometimes we don't even know what we treasure. And a simple budget will reveal it. Trust me. I was helping someone several years ago, actually. They came to me and said, I've got a lot of money in credit card debt and I'm drowning in it. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Which is, by the way, what I really like to do. I'm an analytic. <laughs> I, I like budgeting. I like numbers. In fact, when you put a budget together, a, a budget is nothing more than, than a picture in numbers. That's all it is. It just draws a picture in numbers for you. So this person came to me and said, Bill, I need some help. And I got all this credit card debt and I'm just I'm drowning in it. And I, I just need some help. And I said, OK, well, let's just let's just do this. Let's put a budget together and let's 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 figure out what's up. So we did. And it took us it took a little bit of time because you got to figure out, you know, 
the income was easy, but we had to figure out the expense side of the equation. And so we did that. And and it was it was amazing what happened. It only took like two or three hours to put this thing together. But what we did was that this person discovered that there were three lifestyle and spending habits that jumped off of the page at her when we went through this. And she'd never seen it before. And they were simply this. Every morning she was going to work and she stopped at the drive in place and bought one of them fancy coffees. And when she got to work, she really enjoyed her work. She got to work and she worked hard all morning and then she went out to lunch. Every day she went out to lunch. Get it? She went out to lunch. And then on the way home, usually, she had one more stop and it included, dare I say, buying a pack of cigarettes. So we put it on the budget. And when she looked at that, she said, oh, it was $650 a month. And prior to seeing it on paper, she didn't even realize why she couldn't make the minimum payment on her 19.99% credit card debt. And all we did was put the numbers on the piece of paper and it jumped out. You know what the cool thing was? Immediately when seeing that, we hadn't even got done. We were sitting at her kitchen table and she gets done with that and she says, well, that's it. I'm going to start making coffee at home and brown bagging the lunch. So that's what she did. You know what else she did? She quit smoking cold turkey. Ah! <laughs> and it came from the numbers on a piece of paper. You see, it's not easy sometimes, guys, because what happens is you got to change what you value if you're not valuing the right things. But she hit the trifecta. She hit the trifecta because she made a simple budget and stuck with it. And then she started living a healthier lifestyle. And then she glorified God in the process, which is what she wanted to do. But she realized at that point she had no idea she wasn't. Then she realized to do this she was. And it was like it changed her life. Three simple things she did every day changed her life. And glorifying God in all things is God's will for your life and mine. That's why we're here. Amen? Amen. All right. So if you're doing something or if you're doing anything that isn't glorifying to God, I have some advice for you. Stop doing it. Just stop. I mean, come on. You know one of my favorite sayings? Get over your bad self and just stop it. Seriously. Me too. So again, it's not how much money we have, but it's what we do with it that matters. Now, John D. Rockefeller was once asked in an interview what the secret was to his financial success. Anybody remember John D. Rockefeller? Now, John D. Rockefeller... He was an oil man. And John D. Rockefeller was a very, very rich oil man. And he died in 1937. And so this question was asked of him. Hey, John. He's a very wealthy man. They, the interviewer wanted to know what his secret was. Well, that makes sense. Because at the time, in 1937, he was the wealthiest man in the world. And by some 
accounts, probably the wealthiest man that's lived in modern time because the amount in today's dollars, his estate, by the way, he died and didn't take it with him, but his estate, his estate in 1937 was worth $418 billion. I don't know, I can't count that high. Rockefeller answered the question of the interviewer this way. One sentence answer to what the secret of his financial success was. You ready? He said this. Tithe 10%, save 10%, live on the rest. Other than Solomon, probably the richest man that's ever been on the planet Earth. And he says, tithe 10%, save 10%, live on the rest. How are we doing with that, I wonder? This is a guy that understood. Uh, do, we, do we have Proverbs 3, 9, Eileen? Put that up. This is a guy that understood and lived by this. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all you produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. Now, my guess is there's not many of us in here that are going to anytime soon have $418 billion. Be nice, though, wouldn't it? See, that's not the point. The point isn't the $418 billion. The point is tithing, saving, and living. It all starts with honoring. Do you catch that? It starts with honoring. Where are you going to start? Twenty three hundred and fifty verses in Scripture. Talk about money, and we've got to keep them in context. And you'll see that if you do that, the primary context of these verses in Scripture about honoring God with our life that just happens to include money. Whose money is it? Amen. Most of these verses remind us that God lives loves a cheerful giver. We heard that one already this morning. But Rockefeller knew that God also loves a cheerful saver. We see that in the parables. And God also loves a cheerful giver. And speaking of giving, because you knew it was coming, didn't you? You just knew it was coming. We need to be clear about what the Bible says. And we need to be clear about what the Bible says even about giving. Because just the mention of giving makes some of us really uncomfortable. Amen? Because I'm asking for honesty here. Again, I just want to be bold. How many people are a little uncomfortable with the whole giving thing? Come on. Boy, there's a lot of sin in this room. So I'm just going to suggest this morning, really, as a church, we just need to get fat. Yeah, we just need to get fat. Faithful, available, and teachable. That's what we need to do. See, because I'm going to tell you something. Churches teach all kinds of crazy things on giving. And what's important, actually critical, is not what a church 
teaches or says. It's what Scripture says that is important. That's what matters. And by the way, that's what you will always get here. What Scripture teaches. Biblical truth spoken in love. That's what we're about. And you've heard me say this before, perhaps. Maybe it's new to you. I don't know. But I will say it again. Till Jesus comes or he takes me home, whichever comes first, I will say this. Because when it comes to discovering what's important, even critical, about what you hear, it must come from Scripture. So... You need to get into the Word of God so that the Word of God will get into you. Because quite frankly, church, if you have a flippant relationship with the Word of God, you are going to have a flippant relationship with the God of the Word. We must be in the Word of God. So why don't we see what God's Word has to say about this giving thing? Relax. It's not your money. (laughs) It's his. So if you've been in the church for any time, you've probably heard it said that you are required to tithe 10% of your income. And if you don't, it's a sin. Heard that one? So let's be honest. Some of you right now even feel guilty because that's your tradition. You grew up in that tradition and you're thinking, well, am I giving 10%? Is it a sin? Am I sinning every time the bag goes down the road? Ah! But then some of you have also heard and I, I won't point it out where I've heard it. Uh, yeah, I don't want to mention any, any names, but Mark said, <laughs> well, I was a brand new believer when I heard this. On the other hand, maybe you've heard it said that, wait a minute, we're under grace. We're under the new covenant. We're not under the Old Testament law anymore. So no tithe is even required. So which is it? Are we supposed to give the 10%? And is that grosser net, by the way? Or are we not supposed to because we're under grace and we're not, we don't have to tithe at all. Now, remember here, we just got to get fat. Faithful, available, and teachable. Okay? So why don't we start with the word tithe itself? What does the word tithe mean? A tenth. This simply means a tenth. You hear that churchy word all the time, tithe. We have tithes and offerings. When I first became a Christian, I went to a church here in town. I've been to two churches in my entire Christian life, that one and this one. And when I first went to that one, they would pass this, these, they, they passed, they had bags there. Oh, wait, these we have bags here too. But anyway, they would pass the bags and they would go down the row. And I'm not, a, I wasn't a church guy. I was a, I was on a journey, right? I was a seeker and I'm watching this and they're praying. Oh, we did that too. So we, they were praying and this offering was coming and it's an offering and they called it at the time tithes and offerings. It was right there in the little bulletin that they handed out to me and I'm looking at tithe. I didn't know what a tithe was. So the bag comes down the row and I'm looking at the, I'm doing this, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, what am I supposed to do? And it comes in. It's pretty clear, self-evident that people are putting stuff in. It's obviously money because I see, actually, I see dollar bills. I don't, what did I do with that hundred dollar bill? Randy, did you take that? Oh, no, I got it. So protect that hundred dollar bill, brother. So they're putting money in there. It was pretty self-evident that that's what we're supposed to do. The problem was I had no idea how much to put in there. Was I putting in enough? Was I putting in too much? Was I supposed to put any in at all? There were no instructions on the bag when it went by. 
I was uncomfortable. I'm being serious now. I was uncomfortable with the whole idea of that thing running by. And I, I would literally, I guess it's a confession. I would start to sweat. It's like, oh, man. It was uncomfortable. Seriously. Because it was about money. So if you're wigged out about tithes and offering bags coming down the rows, or for any other giving that might happen in your Christian walk, I think we've got to get fat by going back to what the Scripture says about it. And we've got to go all the way back to Genesis. You see, because before God laid down the Mosaic Law, there were these two dudes, and they were brothers, and their name was Cain, and they were Abel. And what we run across them in Genesis chapter 4, and the first thing that we see in Genesis chapter 4 that God wants to teach us about giving is this offering. So Genesis 4, starting in cha- or Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 3, says, When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs of his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. Now, we're not even told exactly why God didn't accept Cain's offering. Not exactly. We have to read a little bit further in that passage to see that, that for some reason, the one offering wasn't exactly right. But we're not told. We don't know. You've got to discover a little bit more. So there wasn't something right about it. And then if you read a little bit further, we're told that there was actually some sin involved in that. And so if you're reading that for the first time, you're thinking, wait a minute, one offering had, wasn't right. And there was, there was some sin, but we're not told exactly what it was. And we've got to wait till we get all the way to Hebrews to figure out it out all the way to hebrews so hebrews 11:4 clues us in check this out the writer of hebrews tells us what's going on with cain and abel and he says by faith abel brought god a better offering than cain did by faith he was he was commended as righteous and god spoke well of his offerings and by faith abel speaks even though he's dead Woo! supernatural speaking through a dead man that was giving an offering to the Lord in Genesis. So it's really clear that there's a faith component to an offering. No question about it, right? Faith offering. There's a faith component to offering. But then you see God sends Moses down the mountain with this law. Most of you know the story. And of course, this law was to be given to the Israelites. And that's a huge story in and of itself, isn't it? So this is where we're presented for really for the first time with the tithe, this tithe meaning a tenth. But if you think the requirement here for the Israelites to give a tenth, and by the way, if you're using the Mosaic law as the standard for given, I think you're about to get fat here. I think you're about to get fat. Because was the Mosaic law, by the way, a 10% tithe? Oh, no. Oh, no. Get into the Word of God and find this one out. Not at all. You see, there was a Levitical tithe, and that was 10%. Now, you find that in Numbers chapter 18. And if you look at Numbers chapter 18, you find out this Levitical tithe was 10%, and that was to support the who? The Levites. Who were the Levites? Anybody here? Huh? The priests. Yeah, the church workers of the day, right? And so they were there taking this 10%, a tithe, a tenth, and they were taking it for the Levites so that the church could function, right? They're payroll to make, right? Payroll taxes. I don't know what they had back then, but it was to pay the Levites and support the workers in the church. Perfect. But we're not done yet. See, because God also laid down the festival tithe and the festival. Oh, yeah. By the way, that's another 10 percent. 
a temper- Wait a minute, but you thought it was only 10%. And not according to the Old Testament law. In the Old Testament law, here's another 10%. All of a sudden, we're up to 20. The festival tithe, yep, that other 10%, right here. It's in Deuteronomy and, and, and Leviticus both. The festival tithe was used to support the Feast of the Tabernacles. And this was an annual celebration, and it was to celebrate God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. That's a big thing to celebrate. And with 10%, I'll bet it was a heck of a party. (laughs) Hmm. But see, we're still not done. We're still not done if you are on the standard of the Old Testament tithe. Because then there was the charity tithe. And the charity tithe was to be used for what? Charity. We call it the shepherd's fund around here. That was also a 10% tithe. But you're probably glad if you're an Old Testament guy around here, you're probably really glad that this tithe only had to be paid every third year. So you can take that 10%, 33 and a third. That's good. He was to be specifically used for widows, orphans, and foreigners. So now that you're fat and you understand that the Old Testament, historically and biblically, and if you do the math, if you're an Old Testament giver, then are you required then to pay all three of these tithes? Because that would be 23%. Are you fat? I think we just learned something here. Wait a minute. The Old Testament law required 23%. That was the minimum. But Rockefeller said 10 and 10 and live on the rest. Did he have it right? Because, I mean, we have modern day Levites. There's one sitting right in the front row. We have festivals, too, every Sunday after church. There's donuts. And we have a church barbecue every year. And then we have Thanksgiving dinner. It's a festival. Man, I can't wait till you're giving that 10% for that. That's going to be, you talk about party. It's okay. Christians can party. We have a big one. We have a big party. And we also have widows, don't we? Some sitting in this room. And orphans. Some that we support in other countries around the world. And foreigners. People that need to come to know Jesus. That need to be invited into the church. And we need to be hospitable to them. That's the charity tithe. So no wonder some of you are feeling guilty because you're so confused about what in the heck am I supposed to do 20 years ago when that bag came down the row and I'm trying to figure out what to put in or do I take some out or I didn't know what to do with it. But we need to keep going because we're not done yet. There's 2,350 scriptures all about money in the Bible and we're going to look at every single one of them. I hope you brought a sack lunch. But there are a few Old Testament scriptures I want to highlight as we move on here because they give us some commands and some principles to apply to money because we've got to get to the bottom of this. They relate to wealth and giving like Psalm 37. I don't think, do we have these? I lead, did I give these? Okay, good. You have to just listen. Psalm 37 reminds us that we have to prioritize righteousness over money. Psalm 111 tells us clearly that all blessings, including money, come from who? Psalm 112 commands us to be generous and then tells us why. Because the Lord has been so good to us. God is good and all the time. Now, you know why we say that. 
Proverbs 19, speaking about generosity, we're told that generosity to the poor will be repaid by the Lord. And then we're given a warning in Proverbs 23 that says that if we're going to chase after money, if that's all we're about is just chasing after money, wealth for ourselves, it says don't do that. The warning is is that money can sprout wings and poof, it can be gone. Reminds me of 2000, was it eight or nine? Woo, my 401k got dipped by almost 50%. 50% of my retirement went, woo, right out the window. Pretty stern warning in Proverbs 23. So with a careful study of the Old Testament, I think we can conclude a couple of things here. Number one, acquiring money and the proper use of it is an important part of a right relationship with God. And it's been that way since the very beginning. Did you hear that? Acquiring money money and the proper use of it is an important part of a right relationship with God. And secondly, from the Old Testament we learn, because we're fat here, is that faith plays a significant role in both getting and giving money. Faith plays a significant role. So that's the abbreviated Old Testament survey on money and tithing. I was telling Richie earlier today, man, we could do a series on this for like six months. We're going to do it in like three hours. <laughs> but we've got to come to the New Testament because that's the new covenant. And that is the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we celebrate here every single week. The new covenant in the blood of Christ. Amen. We remember the Lord Jesus, which is why we're even here, because it's about Jesus. Ah, Thank you. So the entire Old Testament, all of it pointed to Jesus, right? The law and the prophets, everything pointed to Jesus. Now, in the New Testament, it's a new covenant, which has a few things to say about tithes and offerings, as you might expect. So let's get fat on the New Testament and answer the tithing question based on the whole counsel of God. Because, frankly, we don't get to just pick and choose. If you're picking and choosing, stop. Okay? You can smile. Okay, let's stop that then. Don't pick and choose. If it's in the Word of God, it's in the Word of God. Do you trust Him or not? See, in the end, being disobedient to what the Word of God says... It just doesn't work. It always has a negative consequence. Trust me, I know. So the New Testament clearly says that we are under grace and not under law. So those of you that are worrying right now about your 23% tithe requirement, I want you to just breathe. Okay. Breathe just a little bit. But not so fast. Mark, not so fast. Because Romans 10.4 says this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then Romans 6.4 says this. For sin will have no dominion over you since, what? You are not under law but under grace, Mark. And then what about Galatians 5.18? I love this one. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Woo! We're not under the law. My favorite, of course, of the grace, I had to throw this in. My favorite of the grace scriptures is Galatians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
<laughs> Amen to that, right? So when it comes to the Levitical law, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament covenant regarding tithing, we're done with that, right? I mean, you're stretching your neck muscles or what? You can't decide. We're done with that. Well, it sure seems like it until we hear from Jesus himself. Because you see, when Jesus came, he was walking around and he had a lot of things to say, even about money. Now we're, now we're really confronted with something because he's on the Sermon on the Mount and where he emphatically, this is Jesus now. Wait a minute. Didn't he come to fulfill the law? That's what we're just reading in Romans. I love Romans. Woohoo! We're in the grace, not under the law. And then Jesus says in Matthew 5:17, "Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." So yeah, Jesus is the fulfillment. He fulfilled the law. How much of it? All of it. Susan, in the Greek, what does all mean? All. <laughs> it means all. You see, the whole purpose of the law, and we understand that, was to have, God was helping people recognize their sinfulness, right? And their need for a Savior. That's what Jesus came to fulfill. But Jesus, throughout the New Testament, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, proceeds to tell us how to live under grace. In fact, he referred regularly, and I mean regularly, to the law. And in every single case, church, listen up, in every single case where Jesus talked about the law, he raised the bar. He raised the bar. He never lowered the bar, ever. In fact, when he told us to to follow him, what did he tell us to do? He told us to take up our cross and follow him. The first lesson is, he said, you've got to die to yourself. You don't do that once, you do that daily. Sometimes you've got to do that every hour. Sometimes for me, it's multiple times an hour. The good news is, is that we have the power of the Holy Spirit through the grace of God to be able to do that. But when it comes to living a new covenant life in Jesus Christ. You are not required to follow the law. Isn't that what it says? Hmm. You see, because we follow Jesus, right? We follow Jesus. We love Jesus. We say we love Jesus because he first loved us. I hope so. Then I hope we start living that way. Because in Matthew chapter 5, after Jesus said that he was a fulfillment of the law, he went right to the heart of the matter in raising the bar of the law. Listen to this in Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. Jesus raises the bar on the, Old, on the Old Testament law. Listen to this, because he was talking about murder. And you know, he said that if you murder, you will be subject to judgment. And then under grace, he says, but being angry with someone is the same as murder. Then he says, in some translations, if you even call somebody that you know an idiot, it's the same as murder. And he said, if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. You see, Jesus didn't mess around here. He raised the bar. In verse 27, 
He raised the bar on adultery. Listen to this. The Old Testament law said that you must not commit adultery. Then Jesus under grace said, men, if you even look lustfully at a woman, you have already committed adultery in your heart. No physical act required. The bar was raised incredibly high. Jesus raised the bar on divorce. He raised the bar on making and, and, and breaking vows. And he then turned upside down the bar on revenge because we all like revenge, huh? <clears throat> we just don't like it when God says vengeance is mine. No, we want it. Bad person. God strike him. No, Jesus, Jesus flipped that upside down. Jesus in the Old Testament referred to the fact that there was an eye for an eye. But in the New Testament, under grace, he said, hey, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, give them your left. Every case in point is simply a raising of the bar. And about money, Jesus knew each one of us, like the rich young ruler. We know that story, too. He came to him with a great story, the story of his own life. He was a good guy, and he said, all I want to know is how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus knew his heart. He said, go sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And this fellow just simply walked away, didn't he? Because where was his heart? With his money. Matthew 19, 24, also very familiar. Jesus said, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of, of, of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Money can sure create some problems, can it? So what is the biblical answer to the question of tithing 10%? Is it required? Man, I wish somebody would have told me this 20 years ago when those bags were coming down the row. <laughs> I had to sweat through that for seemingly a really long time. Well, let me tell you what the Bible says. When you study the whole of the New and the Old Testament, the entire counsel of God teaches and therefore this church teaches because it is biblical and we believe that Christians, are you ready, are not required to tithe. Don't check out because we're not done yet. There is no biblical precedence for tithing under the new covenant, just like there is none for membership, which is why we don't have membership here in this church either. We have covenant. We're either in a covenant relationship with the Lord. And we need to be in a covenant relationship with each other. So do not check out because first we've already seen this in the Mosaic law, the law that required tithes to be paid. If we were going to follow the Mosaic law, then we're going to start paying 23%. So if you're a Mosaic law person, pay up 23%. We're going to start a building program. But Jesus and the Apostle Paul and none of the other writers of the New Testament ever commanded Christians to tithe. Ever. We just want to be followers of Jesus. Aren't we supposed to tithe? No, Jesus said he never talked about tithing except in two instances. And in both cases, he was calling out the Pharisees for the way they were tithing. He said, oh, you want to put your $100 in and you want everybody to know that you put your $100 in and then oh, you don't even care about mercy and justice and, and righteousness. 
Jesus in Matthew 22 alludes to a tithe by answering the trick question. We all remember this one. And, and he answered the question. I'm not even going to give you the question. I'm just going to give you the answer. And it's going to remind you of this verse. It said, Jesus said, to give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. But nowhere does Jesus ever tell us what to give to God. Except when he tells us that it is all God's. Get it? Not 10%. Not 20 or 23 percent. Jesus said it's all God's. In the 2350 verses in Scripture that deal with money, there's a lot of instruction on giving. But rather than following some kind of a set of rules like we followed in the Old Testament law, it's always a set of qualitative traits that Jesus talks about giving that both honor, there's that honor word again, and reflect God's character in the process of giving. Our giving is to reflect the character of God. Jesus is God. He gave it all. And we're almost done here, so speaking of God's character. In the New Testament, we have a few scriptures like this. 2 Corinthians 8, 3. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it out of their own free will. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must Give, must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, this is free will offering. This is free will giving. You see, you got to see it. New covenant giving is heart, not law. Second Corinthians 8, 2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. What? How is that possible? Extremely afflicted in extreme poverty and they were both joyful and generous. It's upside down. The whole Jesus economy is upside down. We're told about the the, the, the widow that came and, and gave a couple of copper coins that was worth a penny. And Jesus called his boys together and said, see that? She gave out of her poverty. And she's joyful about it. Her two pennies are worth way more than what anybody else put in the bag. Get it? You got to see that. See, we're just instructed to give cheerfully and we're told to give generously and we're told to give generously to support kingdom work. So throughout the New Testament, we're told over and over and over again to give, not what to give. We're told to give generously, not what to give. I'm telling you, the what goes this way. The what goes this way. See, because the truth be known, Jesus not only wants your entire life, he wants all your money too. What? Oh, don't take that out of context. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus, your life is Christ. It all belongs to him. All of it. I promise we're about to close. Randy Alcorn, in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, calls even the idea of a New Testament tithe the training wheels of giving. 
God wants your heart. God wants our heart. Now, if some of you are still uncomfortable with this money and giving thing, you know what? I pray that God today in this place right now would set you free. I pray that God would set you free so that you just don't have to think or worry or fret or anything about money anymore. You see, because it's not yours, it's his, just like you are his. And you need to decide which of the two D words you're going to choose under grace to describe your faithful biblical giving. Is it duty or delight? See, because if it's duty, I'm sorry. That's bondage. Please do not give out of duty. Don't. Bondage is a bummer. And I pray that if that's where you are, that you would be set free from that. And I implore you to seek first the kingdom of God. That's where to start. Honor him with your life, which includes your resources. Because when you value Jesus more than anything, that will change everything. That's what we need to most value, church. We come to church and what we really need to do is we need to understand that what we value is not the coming to church is what we value who we're coming to church to worship. It's Jesus that we value. But if it's a delight, if giving for you is a delight, well, praise God. Amen. Come on. It's a journey. We're in sanctification here. Not everybody's in the same place. Don't beat yourself up. So, church, it is totally a journey. This thing following Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? Because sometimes in the flesh, it just ain't easy. And when it's our pocketbook, it makes it even tougher sometimes, doesn't it? I mean, let's just get honest. But listen, if you're in a covenant relationship with Jesus, and you want to be fat, faithful, available, and teachable, just seek him first. Put Jesus first in your life. Because we are under grace. We are saved by grace through faith. And you see, Jesus gave us his all. He gave that for us. And finally, Jesus is real, real, real clear on this. Watch where your money goes. Because... For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the final question that I have for you this morning is this. What? Better yet, who do you value? Invest wisely. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this might have been a long-winded message, God, but I'm glad that you are here and present with us and speaking. And God, for all of us that are 
or have been struggling with with our money? God, will you remind us that it's not ours and will you do that regularly because we are getting mixed messages from the world day in and day out. God, will you help us to understand that Jesus, you are our life. And I pray you would help us understand that we need to be Psalm 24 people and understand that we belong to you. That everything belongs to you. God, that you just intend for us to be stewards. We're not taking it with us, God. John D. Rockefeller left $418 billion on the table. He was a believer. Lord, he went home to be with you. Which is where you're calling us to go, God. So in the meantime, just as we sit here, we need your help. We need your help to focus on the priorities. And the priority, Jesus, is you. Help us to steward our life. Help us, God, in that, to just get comfortable with the resources that all belong to you anyway that you have provided. God, I admit that sometimes it's not easy to talk about money. But we need, Lord, before you and each other to talk about you and money. And then God invest it wisely. So we need the counsel of the Holy Spirit to do that. We can't do it on our own. We just can't. We can't even live on our own. So thank you, God, how supernaturally you enter into our lives, God. And you give us everything we need for both life and godliness. And that's our, di- our desire, God, is to honor you and to glorify you in every aspect of our life. Amen.